1 Samuel 2 in your Bibles, please. We looked last time we were together in 1 Samuel, which was a good three weeks ago, uh, because of Resurrection Sunday and then our missionary uh, who came. Uh, We looked at the problems surrounding Eli's sons. And we preached through verse 26. I'm going to kind of go back to verse 22 and then go up to verse 29 today. A little bit of overlap in the text. title of the sermon, Fathering for God. As parents, doing what is best for our children can sometimes be a difficult thing to know. I, my daughters are very young at this point and, and I haven't experienced all of the realities of as I'm training them and teaching them and, and raising them all of the difficulties. How hard do you hold them? How far do you let them go? How far do we guide them? How far do we trust them? These dynamics as children get older and, and you, you want to recognize that you need to be transitioning uh, to their own faith and to their own decision-making. These are difficult decisions, and and in many ways they rely upon the child in question, uh, their personality, their character, their propensities, etc. The possible levels of subjectivity regarding how best to lead our children is talking about what I would call fathering with God. The idea that you're prayerfully seeking the Word of God um, keeping, holding the line of, of standards and of precepts and of principles and then um, working through uh, the principles of the Word of God and prayerfully leading them in the way that they ought to go. But today I'd like to dig to a lower level of parenting, of fathering as, as, as how I put it. Certainly uh, the mother plays a, a delegated role as well. And that, that deeper level, I call fathering for God. We're going to look at, into God's Word, and we're going to look at the high priest Eli, specifically in verses 27 through 29 as far as our points are concerned, but certainly all the way back to verse 22 as we see Eli come back into the picture. And I want to dig to that deeper layer of parenting to consider the very motivation for your decision as a parent for the decisions that you make in your children's lives. Not the day-to-day praying, God, should I let them do that or not do that, watch that or not watch that, go there or not go there, but the deeper motivation for our decision-making process, the end goal of our decision-making, the very things that make us tick as parents. And today we're going to consider the difficult dynamics not of fathering with God, but the underlying philosophy of fathering for God. And, and, and don't, don't check out on me if you're not a parent, uh, even if you're not a potential parent. Don't check out on me because we're going to take this and we're going to broaden it. We're going to broaden it to every area of your life as we go through. The principles will be directed specifically toward uh, raising children, but certainly uh, can be applied to a much broader field of application from our text this morning. Now, it's been a while, as I mentioned, since we've been in 1 Samuel, so let's begin by doing a little bit of review. Last time we were together, we considered the difference between our title, our status as, we might say in our age, Christian, or uh, the titles that we take upon ourselves, independent Baptist or fundamental Baptist, or whatever titles we might have, born-again believer, all of these titles that we, we have and, and we, we use in Christian circles, the difference between the titles and the reality of our actions. Eli's sons were priests in Israel. They were the sons of the high priest. One of them would have become the high priest when Eli died. Uh, they had all of the standing. They had all the status. Sons of Levi, um, sons of Aaron, high priests, all of the titles. They had the garments. They looked the part, everything. But for all of their good looks as spiritual leaders in Israel, they were wicked to the core. Wicked to the core. Their lives were consumed by sinful lusts and sinful pleasures. Their love for their sin was public, causing many who saw their wickedness to literally hate worshiping God 
Because when they saw how these men were profaning God's worship, they said, I don't even want to bring my calf to be slaughtered because I know the sons of Eli are just going to take it and drag God's name through the mud. And then it got even worse. And we'll see that again today. As, as Eli rebukes them, they are literally doing sexually impure things with women on the, at the tabernacle. They had gotten to the point where there was not even a pretense of godliness anymore. At least before there was a pretense of godliness. They came to the point of depravity and of wickedness as the priests of God where they, it was no holds barred. No, no even pretense of godliness anymore. And they just didn't, didn't care. They drew others into their sin in every possible way. And we learned last time the immense importance of having a heart that is right with God. It's not about whether or not you call yourself a Christian. It's not about whether you have the titles. It's not about whether you wear the name. It's not about whether you have a, 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 a cross uh, over your neck or, or if you have a fish on your car. The, those things are fine. It's not that any of those things are wrong, but it's not what makes you anything for God. Nor does having a fish on your car or a cross around your neck or, in, or on your earlobes or wherever, wherever else you might wear a cross, nor does any of that mean that you have any sort of actual heart that is right before God. What matters is our relationship with God and how that relationship manifests itself to the world around us. So that's what we talked about last time. And now we're going to transition our focus from Eli's sons to Eli. Himself, And notice what he says in verse 23. Eli is speaking to his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and, he, and his, his reproach was, I mean, it was a good reproach. Uh, his, his response to their sin was decidedly negative, so much that we would almost be tempted to give Eli a pass. Notice what he says in verse 23 and 24. Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. And then he warns them that there's no intercessor for a priest of the Lord before God. Well, good job, Eli, right? Good job, Eli. Good rebuke. Tell them how it is, Eli. Right? It's all you can do, Eli. You can't make their choices for them. You, all, all you can do is tell them. Right? What more could God want? You've told them what's wrong. You've told them what's right. Right? So then Eli comes into our minds as the good godly father of some children that simply went bad. But the problem is that's not the case. That's not what's going on here. Eli wasn't the good godly father of some children that went bad. Eli wasn't the shining example of godliness that was simply rejected by the next generation. Eli was a negligent spiritual leader in Israel and in his household. And his negligence fostered within the hearts of his sons an attitude of perversion and callousness to the Word of God. Did Hophni and Phinehas still bear their personal responsibility for their actions and their sin? Absolutely. Eli would not stand before God and answer for the sins of Hophni and Phinehas. Would Hophni and Phinehas one day answer? Yes, they will, did. But Eli failed, both as a high priest and as a father. And his failure touched the entire nation spiritually. And we can learn from his failure today. In fact, we must learn from Eli's failure today. It's intended that we learn from Eli's failure today. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul said this, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Paul says that the things that were written in the Old Testament were written for you to learn. The Old Testament is not just important, it is essential for us to understanding God and understanding a lot, a great deal of what happens in the New Testament. Sorry, a lot is what you put a house on. Every time I say a lot, I think of my 8th grade English teacher. A lot is what you put a house on. So, um, a great deal. In proper grammar terms there, a great deal of what we know about God comes from the Old Testament. 
These things were written to give us understanding. These things were written to give us hope. So let's learn today from the Word of God. Let's take the Word of God in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and transition the examples of Eli and his failures and his sons and their failures and learn some lessons for us today. I'm going to skip to verse 27, which says this, And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father? when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house. A man of God is sent from God to speak to Eli. This is the first time we see this designation, man of God, in this particular construction, Hebrew construction in the Bible. Moses was called a man of God. Um, Samson's mother called the angel of the Lord a man of God. But the idea of both of those phrases in the Hebrew is a godly man. But this, in this case, however, we see the first of only six times in the Old Testament where a man is called a man from God. And Ish Elohim is the, is the, the Hebrew, indicating a commission, indicating a purpose to go. Now, we don't know who this man is. There are two men of God in the Old Testament that we simply don't know their names. We have no idea who they are. They were never identified. This one, and then the man that comes to Jeroboam and uh, calls him out on his false calf worship in Kings. And so this man of God, he has no identity. We do not know who he is. He's never given a name, but he comes to Eli. And he delivers a message. And as he continues in that message, he says, we read verse 27, let's read verses 28 and 29. And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the cheapest, chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. In verse 27, the man of God first reviews God's goodness, faithfulness, and blessing to Eli and his family. And he asks first, did I plainly appear to the house of thy father? If you have the outline that I gave you from 1 Samuel, if not, there's not any on the back table. We might have a few extras. We'll put them out if you need one. But in that outline of 1 Samuel, on the back page, you'll see a genealogy of Levi and his sons. And if you ever look at that genealogy or another genealogy of Levi, you'll find that Aaron, the high priest, was the great-grandfather of Eli. This is the same Aaron who God spoke to in Egypt and who, who, to whom God promised redemption. And this is what God is referencing. Do you remember the account? The account is in Exodus chapter 4. God and Moses are having that verbal sparring match before the burning bush. Do you remember that? God wants to send Moses, and Moses says in Exodus chapter 4 verse 1, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared. So God tells Moses, Go and deliver my people Israel out of their captivity. I'll be with you. I'll deliver them, and you'll lead them out of Egypt. And Moses kind of cranks up the excuse machine, right? He gets it running, and it's purring now. And he's got all of these excuses to give God. And the first one is, God, God, they won't believe me. You can't expect them to believe me. I'm going to go there and they're just going to say, no, you're crazy. And God says, well, you don't have to worry about that because, see, I'm God. And I'll convince them. It's not for you to convince them. It's for you to tell them. You're the messenger. You're the tool. I'm the power. It's the same thing with us sharing the gospel today, right? We don't have to convince anybody. We don't have to manipulate anybody. We don't have to guilt anybody. We're not the power. We're the, we're the messenger. We're the tool. We're the means by which people hear the gospel. God is the one who convinces. So God says the same thing to Moses. I'm the power. You're the mouthpiece. You don't have to convince them. I'll convince them. Moses says, okay, okay, that's a pretty good one. Then he goes on in verse 10 and he says, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. I'm not eloquent, God. I, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be your mouthpiece, but I can't speak. And, and God says, You've forgotten again, Moses, I'm God. Who made man's mouth? Who's the one that made the mouth? If, if I made the mouth, 
Do you believe I can put words into it? Would you believe that your pastor is a terrible public speaker? I got a... The only C I got in high school was in public speaking. I couldn't get up in front of anybody and speak. Hands would get all clammy, stuttering. I stuttered a lot when I was a child. It just, it just was not pretty until the day that God called me to ministry. And something changed. All of a sudden, the message was more important than the fear. All of a sudden, the power of God and the Word of God made my fear and my inhibitions as far as speaking is concerned and whatever inability was actually there go away. Because see, God made man's mouth. And where God leads, He provides. Where God calls, He empowers. But Moses isn't so convinced yet. And so he says in verse 13 of Exodus 4, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. This is actually kind of a nice statement. God, send by the hand that you'll send. In other words, the idea is kind of resignation. Okay, God, if you're going to send me, I'll go. But the problem is, he has no faith here. He says, okay, God, if you're going to make me, I'll go. Okay, God, fine, I'll do it. And God was not happy with that. God gets angry and says, okay, fine, Moses, if you're going to be that way, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send Aaron to you. And Aaron is going to become your mouthpiece. And you're going to lose the privilege of being the one through whom I speak because now I'm going to speak to you and you're going to speak to Aaron and Aaron's going to speak to the people and to Pharaoh. You have just lost that privilege. I'm going to send Aaron to do it. If you won't do it, he will. And this is, this is God appearing to Eli's father in the wilderness. The word father in the Old Testament doesn't have to mean direct lineage, the next guy above you. It can mean grandfather, great-grandfather. Uh, it, it, it simply means one of your uh, posterity, one of your, your uh, descendants from years gone by. And so Exodus 4.27 tells us, The Lord said unto Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God and kissed him. So God appears to Aaron, and can you imagine, we're not preaching through this today, I'm probably getting a little bit off track, but they were captives. God appears to Aaron and says, hey, go. I, I don't know that these people just had kind of a free, I can leave whenever I want relationship with their captors there in Egypt, but but it just takes it matter of fact for granted in, in Exodus chapter 4 that God said, Aaron, go to the wilderness to meet your brother, Moses, and Aaron goes and meets him. It doesn't say anything about him having to escape. It doesn't say anything about him having to slip out in the middle of the night. I don't know how he got out. I don't know how he got there, but, but he did. He just left. And he meets Moses. God appears to Aaron in the wilderness and says, do this. And this is likely the reference that God is making in 1 Samuel 2.27, God appearing, plainly appearing to the house of his father, to the house of Levi, to Aaron, and to Moses. And he asks, did I not? Did I not make myself known unto them? I did. He says, I made myself known unto them. Did I not, God inquires, clearly reveal who I am and what I expect? Yes, he did. He revealed himself. Unto Aaron. He revealed himself unto Moses. He revealed himself unto Levi in his posterity. Chapter, or in uh, verse 28, he says, And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire unto the children of Israel? And so he doesn't just talk about revealing himself in the wilderness. But didn't I make you something even more special than your brethren? Not only had God revealed himself, but all, out of all the tribes of Israel, God had personally chosen the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron to be God's priests, to be the ones to offer incense upon the altar and to do the sacrifices and such. And God references here the events surrounding his choice of Aaron and his sons. You recall the tribe of Levi being chosen. And they were chosen in Exodus 24, just after the golden calf worship. Moses comes down off the mount and 
and he breaks the tablets in his anger and he goes and he melts that golden calf and he puts it into the water and then he makes the people drink of the, the water that has the gold in it. Um, and then he says, whoever's on the Lord's side, come over here with me and with Aaron. And the tribe of Levi is the one that comes over. The others don't. And God says, okay, tell those that came with you to pick up your swords and to start killing their brethren. And so they picked up their swords and they started slaying until God said, stop. It was a, a terrible day in Israel's history. But God says, because Levi were, they were willing to get on God's side, God says, I'm going to allow the tribe of Levi to be that, that special tribe that ministers in the tabernacle. And then in Exodus chapter 28, God chooses Aaron specifically to be the high priest, to be the one through whom the priestly line would go. They were to be the ones that would actually do the sacrifices, would actually minister before the Lord in the tabernacle. And so Aaron and his family were given a fantastic privilege, a privilege above and beyond the others in Israel. Now they were all privileged, were they not? to be chosen by God, to be God's people. But these were like the privileged of the privileged. And in, in some ways, I, I see ministers there. Ministers, now we're all privileged as believers. But then God calls some of us to have the privilege of serving the believers and to, to studying the Word of God. I, I get to study God's Word for my living. I'm fantastic. What a blessing. I remember when I was in, in college and I was an undergraduate in criminal justice and computer science and I'd been called to full-time ministry and my parents uh, asked um, that I would not change my major so I didn't and I, I submitted myself to them according to what I told the Lord I would do which is to submit myself to the leading of my parents in that regard. And yet, for, for all that I knew, God didn't want me to become this pastoral ministries major because he didn't, let, he didn't lay it upon my parents to let me switch. There was something about these guys who were going to school and their school was like church. I mean, they got to just study the Bible. That's all they did all day. I mean, Bible class after Bible class after Bible class and learning how to learn more about the Bible and learning how to study the Bible and studying the Bible. And, and, and that's what they did. And I was in math classes and computer classes and, and criminal justice classes. And those were good and interesting. I, I still have a heart for those things. But man, these guys just get to study the Word of God. What a privilege. And, and that's the idea here. Aaron and his sons and the tribe of Levi, that, that's what they got to do. They got to serve God. They didn't have to go and farm and, and, and raise cattle and, and build big homesteads and all of those things. They didn't have to do all of that. They were supported by the people. They got to serve God. God says, is this not a privilege? Did I not choose you? You know, we as humans have a tendency to forget about the privileges that God has given to us. At first, we feel the weight of these blessings and we want to be good stewards of the blessings. But then those blessings over time kind of become old hat, right? Expected. That all of these privileges that we have become almost our entitlements. And worse yet, sometimes they become a burden. Eli had forgotten the privilege that God had given to him and his family. He had forgotten the blessing of being the chosen of the chosen of the chosen, literally. Aaron's family, tribe of Levi, nation of Israel, chosen of the chosen of the chosen. Doesn't mean he's better than the rest of them, simply means he had a privilege. God had given that family a privilege and he had taken it for granted. And so the message is in verse 29. And the message that the man of God gives to Eli is this, Wherefore kick ye, at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. If we were to boil this down to its, its most contextually accurate application, I'd probably be preaching something about the ministry. But since we're not all ministers here today, uh, we're going to talk about the idea of him honoring his sons above God. God confronted Eli about the fact that he's revealed himself to them. God has confronted Eli about the fact that uh, his family has been favored. But now it's time to get down to the nitty-gritty of the problem. And the problem is that for all of God's goodness to Eli and to his family, Eli had honored his sons above God. 
Eli had seen his son's sins, knew the wickedness and profanity that they committed in the tabernacle, but he feared more to discipline his children than he did to please and honor the word of God. I don't know what was going through Eli's mind here. Perhaps uh, we who are parents and you who are a bit older can understand this temptation a little bit better. The idea that maybe Eli saw what his sons were doing and he was just afraid that if, if, he, if he was going to give them the consequences that they deserve, maybe people would see him as a bad father. Or maybe... Uh, he feared what it would look like to the rest of Israel if he cast them out of the... See, they were rebellious children. You remember what the Old Testament says about rebellious children? That the parents were to cast them out of the, out of the encampment and to stone them themselves. The parents were supposed to stone the children if they were rebellious. That's what Eli was supposed to do here. Not just demote them. He was supposed to cast them out of the encampment and stone them for their wickedness. But, you know, Eli thought, well, maybe if I do that, what's going to happen? Maybe the people will say, well, if Eli can't keep his kids in line, then nobody can, and they're just going to give up. He, I don't know how he rationalized allowing them to continue in their sin, but something went wrong. Perhaps he reasoned that if he, he uh, did his duty as a priest, then it would, it would literally offend others in Israel. I don't know. But whatever happened, something went wrong with Eli's reasoning. And what went wrong is this. He thought somehow that loving his sons meant not giving them the consequences of their actions. He thought somehow that loving his sons meant letting them get away with this. He somehow put his sons above God in honor. All of Eli's reasoning, all of his mental gymnastics trying to conceal the true problem that he regarded his children as more important than God's glory and testimony. So he would rather have his children profaning God's name as priests than vindicating God's righteousness by making them an example. And by trying to preserve the reputation and lives of his children, not only did he still lose his children, we'll see that in a couple of weeks, but he profaned the name of God. And not only did he lose his children and profane the name of God, but by not put, putting God above his children, by not doing what God had asked him to do, by not holding the, the testimony and, and his love for God and God's reputation above his children, many, many more in Israel were brought into sin. How many lives were affected by Eli's refusal to honor God, by his decision to honor his children above God. How many women were debauched in the tabernacle because Eli chose to honor his sons above God? How many people found no pleasure in worship unto God because Eli's children, uh, because Eli honored his, his sons above honoring God? See, the idea of fathering for God is that our motivation for what we do with our children is not about what we think is best for them, but about what God says is best for them. That we're fathering our children for God's glory. That we're fathering our children in God's name. That God is more important than what we perceive with our eyes and feel with our emotions as far as our children are concerned. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. This is the warning that we do need to consider today for several minutes, however. And as I address fathers, as I address parents, let me just facilitate your capacity to broaden this application. Some of you are, are your kids are grown up and you're beyond that. Some of you are too young and you're not there yet. All of these different circumstances. But, but what about other things that we can honor above God? What about other ways that we can skew our perspective to say, well, I can reason out how I should do this even though God's word says otherwise. What about our jobs? What about our spouses? What about amusements and material desires? What about even, as I preach to myself, ministry? Honoring them above God. Taking a pragmatic approach that says, I know what God's word says about how I ought to do this, but it seems to me that this might be better. Or I don't really want to go in that direction, so I'm just going to ignore what God has to say here. And we place something above God, and in doing so, we find, we will find, grave consequences. 
However, in direct application today, I speak to fathers, encouraging you to father for God. Encouraging you in your parenting to put God's honor and God's word above your children and filter all of your endeavors as to how to raise them and how to guide them through God's word. The idea being that you take any philosophy about how to raise children, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, how you should do it, how you shouldn't do it, should you um, spank, should you not spank, should you use your hand, should you use a paddle, should you do it this way, should you do it that way. You take everything, all of the child psychologists and all of everything, and you pour it through God's Word. And if it doesn't come out clean on the other side, then you can probably just reject that. So the three points that the man of God gave to Eli are the three points we're going to consider. And it's going to build an argument. So stick with me here as we're building our argument. And so fathers, number one, has God not made himself known? Has God not made himself known? Do you not know who God is and what he expects for you and for your children? Has God not redeemed you from sin? Has God not given you His Holy Spirit? Has God not given you His Word and the illumination of the Spirit in order to understand His Word? Titus 2, verses 11-14 through 14 says this, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. This is why God did what he did. This is why God gave himself for us. He did all of that. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to raise again that we should live Lives that are pleasing to Him. Zealous lives directed towards serving the Lord. Soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. We don't have to wait till the world to come to be godly, folks. God saved you to live that way today. He wants you a purified, peculiar people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, He says this, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then again in 1 Corinthians 7.23, ye are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men. One of the privileges, but also the blessings of being a believer, purchased by the blood of Christ and made heir unto righteousness, is that you are not your own. You have been purchased, bought with a price. We do not anymore live in a culture where there's a lot of buying and selling of people. The closest thing we may have to that is sports, right? Those people, uh, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're a sports player, you are a commodity. You, you have a price that has been paid for you and you're expected to perform because you are owned by a team. So there is still this idea of, of um, people as possessions. It's just in a different venue today. It's in sports. So you think about the NFL and all of the the trades and everything that's been going on lately and you realize that these people are being bought and sold for money. Well, when they are bought by a team, they become the property of that team. They reflect the team. They support the team. They're therefore the team. They're owned by the team. They have expectations placed upon them by the team because the team owns them. You have been purchased. Purchased by the blood of Christ. You are owned. You have a master. And he's not a dictator in the sense of being this mean, angry man. He's a benevolent dictator, we might say. Jesus Christ said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but it's still there. You are purchased. Has God not made Himself known to you? Have you not accepted that? Do you not have an obligation to follow His will? It's not an obligation of debt. It's an obligation of grace. If He has purchased you, should you not see yourself as a purchased possession? 
Purchase possession of the Holy God purposefully, yielding yourselves as a tool of the true and living God should be the only natural outcome of your redemption. So Paul told the church in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. For you to place yourself on the altar of Jesus Christ in every way in your life is reasonable for what He has done for you. As a believer redeemed by God, yielding your very self, your every thought, your every action, your every motive to God is nothing less than reasonable. Natural extension of all that you've been given in Christ. The voluntary payment of a life debt purchased by Jesus Christ on your behalf. Fathers, God has made Himself known. Has He not made Himself known to you? Indeed He has. And with that knowledge comes expectation. Second, fathers, has God not given you a special responsibility? Has God not given you a special responsibility? You're a believer. You're a purchased possession. You already have that special place as a believer. But, you know, if you have children, you've been given something very special, haven't you? Children are a gift. You don't believe me? Psalm 127, verse 3. Children are an heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. God calls children a reward, an heritage, a blessing. Jesus Christ, all throughout His ministry, loved the children. Suffer the little children to come unto me, he said. Forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. When God gives you children, he gives you young, impressionable souls who can be shaped and molded. He gives you these young souls and then he places the responsibility of their care and guidance on you. In much the same way, God spoke to Eli and said, Have you not been given the privilege of the priesthood? You've been called out of Israel. You've been called out of Levi. You've been called out of Aaron. You are the high priest in Israel. Doesn't that mean you should, shouldn't you feel the weight of that obligation? Shouldn't you recognize the import of your position? The position was unearned, but deeply important. And God has given you a privileged, unearned, but deeply important responsibility, fathers parents, and that is to raise your children. And Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God calls upon us as parents to live a life of deep and genuine faith before their eyes and to help guide them into the truth of the Word of God, not just through your actions, but through your intentions. But you know what? This isn't really an obligation to your children. You have a responsibility to your children, but you know who you're obliged to? God Himself. The one who gave them to you. Your children are a gift from God. You are obligated to Him for your responsibility. He's the one that you'll answer to. Has He not made Himself known? He has made Himself known. Do we not know that we are to be His? We do know that we are to be His. Do we not recognize that He's given us His Word, the template for for raising our children, the template for living this life? We know that He's given us His Word. Has He not given us a great privilege? He has given us a great privilege. Do we not have the opportunity to raise these children? We do have the opportunity to raise these children. By God's grace, every child in this room could grow up to not have the problems that are all around us. Every child in this room has the capacity to live a life free from the ensnarement of sin that is all around us because every week you sit down and you hear the truth of God's Word. 
It's not because you go to Legacy Baptist Church. It's not because you have Pastor Wickler as your pastor. It's because the Word of God is getting into your ears. And if you have accepted the Word of God by faith and your children, if you have accepted God's Word by faith and have believed on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, then you already have the capacity through the Holy Spirit within you to prevail over the world that is around us. Wow. What a privilege, parents. To raise our children unto God. What a privilege, parents, to reflect the truth, to show them that it's true through our lives, through determined teaching. But fathers, it's for God. And the best thing you can do, third point and finally, the best thing you can do for your children is to honor God above them. Is to honor God more than them is to raise them unto God, not unto you, not unto your church, not unto your society. Raise them unto God. Honor God with the way you raise your children. God has redeemed us. God has given us the children. And if we forget the privileges, we run the risk of forgetting the responsibility. Why do you discipline your children? Why do you have Bible time with your children? Why do you ask your children to memorize verses? Why do you teach them hymns? Why do you ask them to serve others? What is the motivation? Is it because your church says so? Is it because you think it's what's best for them? Is it because of the societal pressures? Or is it because... You've read the Word of God. You know what God wants them to become. You know what God asks you to do in order to help them become that. And you are going to honor God. Do we just do the things we do to create productive citizens? I'd be the first to argue that Christians like those in this group are probably the best and most productive citizens out there because of our understanding of the Word of God and honesty and integrity and submission. But is that why we do it? Do we do the things we do because we think it's what's best for them? Well, I've evaluated everything and how I was raised and I've seen how other kids and this is the direction I think is best. Is it just, is it just us? Is the very root of why we do what we do rooted in us? Our experiences, our understanding. Well, let's go a step farther. Do you do what you do because you love them? Well, yeah, I know that God's Word says that I ought to discipline my children, but I just, I just love them too much. Wait a minute. Is that how it works? See, I, I don't really have any concerns that Eli loved his children there in 1 Samuel 2. But at some point, his misconstrued idea of what it meant for him to love his children overrode his love for God and his obedience to God. At some point, he decided not to discipline his children, not cast them out of the priesthood for their sin, not do what was in their best interest because he thought he was doing what was in their best interest. Parents, if you don't discipline your children when they're young, then life is going to have to discipline them. Right? Somewhere along the line, people have to learn how to live. And if they don't learn how to operate in a society with integrity and truth and honesty, then somehow society is going to have to teach them that lesson. If they don't learn that lying is wrong when lying simply costs them a time out in the corner or, or a, a, a spanking on the tush or a, a loss of a privilege for a week, then they're going to learn it when lying means a loss of their job or lying means a few months in jail or lying means a loss of their marriage or lying means a loss of their own children. And see, somehow the lessons are going to be learned because you can't cheat the system of God's moral law. And to think that doing what is best for them is to not do what God has told us to do for them, which is to instill in them truth and honesty and integrity and a, a knowledge of God is to be backwards. 
It's not doing what's best for them. But Eli somehow thought that was the case. And we can do that too. And when we do so, we honor our children above God. We say, I know better than God how to raise my children. We say that my children are more important to me than what God says I ought to do. His loyalty to his sons became his motivation for operation. And God's rebuke to Eli is this. The best thing you could have possibly done as a parent for your children would have been to maintain a loyalty to God and to His Word. You don't discipline your children because you don't think it's best or even inherently because you love them, but because you love God. You don't train up your children in the Word of God because you think it's best or inherently even because you love them. You do it because you love God. Pastor, what's the difference? What's the difference between being motivated for your children and being motivated for God as long as you've got the the right thinking on it? Well, if your motivation is just material, if it ends at your children, if it ends at your perceptions, if it ends at your understanding, then these motivations are susceptible to alteration, uh, manipulation, and confusion. Your, Your motivations... If they're material, if they're stuck in things in this life, philosophies of this life, experiences that you've had, then they are susceptible to be changed, to be confused. But if you do what you do for God alone, well, what do we know about God? The theological term is immutable. It means unchanging. God does not change. He cannot change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means if God has expectations and you frame your expectations for your children upon God's expectations for your children, then your expectations for them won't change. Your methods might, but your expectations won't which means your children will have the consistency, which means you will have a consistency. And see, God knows how children work because He created them. And He knows how it's done best, which means if you do it God's way, it will be done properly. Eli's motivation got turned around one day. We don't know when it was. He raised his children. He taught them the priesthood. But when they made wrong decisions, his loyalty to them was stronger than his loyalty to God. He deceived himself into thinking that his sons were okay, maybe a little misguided, maybe a little rambunctious, maybe needing some tough love. So he rebuked them, but they ignored him. He thought, well, I've done the best I can. But see, he'd already missed it. He missed it at a lower level of parenting, at a deeper level of the high priesthood. Somewhere along the line, his motivation for what he did was not to honor God. It was to honor himself. It was to honor his sons. It was to honor something else. He lost the battle when his motivation for his decisions was driven by his own moral compass rather than by God's law. Everyone here today, we make decisions every day. Decisions like how to raise and lead and guide our children. Decisions like where to work and where to go and what to to do and who to spend time with. If your loyalties in these decisions rests upon your own understanding or your moral compass or, or the suggestions of others or your church or your pastor, then you run a grave risk of missing the mark. You know, if, you're, if, if you kept all of your understanding for how to raise your children and everything upon pastor and upon what pastor recommends and what pastor thinks and what pastor decides and how pastor does the work, it might work out for you as long as pastor stays straight and your children respond well. But what happens if pastor goes bad? Or what happens if pastor didn't have it quite right? Or what happens if pastor was framing his discipline around his children who aren't like your children? But if we found it on the Word of God, it doesn't change. So how can this help us today? What does this mean for us today? Well, we speak today of a mindset. Not actions, but a mindset. A mindset of seeing yourself the way God sees you, seeing your responsibilities to others the way God sees them, which is He is sovereign over you. He has blessed you with these privileges. Your responsibility is therefore to Him. 
A mindset that is so devoted to doing things God's way that it will motivate your actions toward everything, including the way you raise your children. I mean, that's why this church is what it is. This is why we're a non-age segregated church, because there are those among us who, as we've studied the word of God and seek to be loyal to him, believe that this is the best way to do it. This mindset means that you will guide your children the way they ought to go. You will discipline them even when you don't feel like it. You will raise and nurture your children, leading them into righteousness, not just because you think it's right, but because God says it's right. And God has given you a gift and He wants you to treat it according to His rules. Could you imagine if a babysitter came to your house and you had a list of things you wanted done for your kids? And as soon as you left the house, they kind of took that list and was like, well, I like this one. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want that. No, no, I'm not, no, I don't like that. And I, I, I don't think they really need a bath. And so I'll just do, I'll just do these. And then these other ones, uh-uh. You, you get home and you see that the list was half done and your kids went to bed hungry and say, what happened? Well, I just didn't think that those were the ones. Well, they're not your kids. You weren't hired to... Claim authority over what they, whether or not we're doing what we what we're supposed to do as parents. You were hired to to do what we asked you to do with them. But do we get that way with our kids? Sometimes we look at God and say, "Well, God, I'm I'm the babysitter, but I just think that you're doing it wrong. I'm going to do it my way." God, I know they're your children. You've given them to me. I'm a steward over them, but, you know, I just, I think I could do a better job. I'm going to do it my way. And by doing that, we honor them above God. By doing what is best for God, however, you know what else we're going to be doing inherently? What is best for our children? You will please God and you will have the success as a parent as well. So may I encourage us today, and again, we can broaden this application. Your job, your marriage, your fill in the blank. But parents, how are we doing today? Have we lost a little bit of focus? Are we, are we seeking to raise our children unto God's honor? Or have we honored our children above God? May God help us through His Holy Spirit to apply this, these principles to our hearts. Uh, in a meaningful way.